If you haven't already, will you turn in your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2? We'll begin looking in verse 16. And I need the Lord's help. I imagine that many of you do as well. So let's begin by going to him in prayer. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us that we may in such a way hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. At the risk of stealing Pastor Taylor's thunder in a couple of weeks, I want to begin with a question. What was the chief concern of the Reformers? You may have heard it said that the formal cause of the Reformation was the authority of Scripture, and that the material cause was the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Or for, for many of us, the journey to a Presbyterian church began with coming to believe in the sovereignty of God over all things, including salvation, which means that God alone deserves all glory. So from these truths, we get the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, Soli Deo Gloria. In fact, our tradition is often described as Calvinist, because we're strongly influenced by John Calvin, who is perhaps uh, most associated with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. But you may be surprised to hear what he had to say about the reasons for the Reformation. He wrote this in 1543. If it be inquired then by what things chiefly the Christian religion has a standing existence amongst us and maintains its truth, it will be found that the following two not only occupy the principal place, but comprehend under them all the other parts, and consequently the whole substance of Christianity. That is, a knowledge first of the mode in which God is duly worshipped, and secondly, of the source from which salvation is to be obtained. For Calvin, the primary concern of the church, and the area most in need of reformation, was worship. Worship is central to the church's very existence. And through the Middle Ages, it had been so corrupted that it was not true worship at all. Worship itself is, is so formative that early on, the church came up with a clever motto. Lex orandi, lex credendi. The rule of worship is the law of faith. When the worship of the church is at odds with what the church teaches... It will not be long before the church's confession gives way to the church's practice. The church's worship is essential. We're in a brief series touching on some of the things that make us distinct as a confessional, reformed, evangelical congregation. And I don't know if you've noticed, but Presbyterians are kind of weird. It, it's okay, though, because we wear our weirdness as a badge of honor most of the time. If you've been to many other churches in our area, you may have noticed how we go about our business every Sunday night is a little bit different. But I can assure you, everything about our gathering week in and week out is intentional. 
And it's arranged because we think it is the best way to remain faithful to what God tells us in his word about how he desires to be worshipped. Our passage tonight won't focus as much on the why or the what of worship. Instead, we're going to see more of the how. So to lay the groundwork, I want to make three quick points. These shouldn't be very controversial. And if you disagree with me about them, you can find me afterwards and I'll tell you why you're wrong. First, there is only one God who deserves worship. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Second, every man, woman, boy, and girl is under obligation to him as their creator to offer him honor, obedience, and praise. That is, to worship him alone. And third, this God has revealed that his desire is for his people to gather together regularly for the sole purpose of worshiping him. That corporate gathering is what our attention will be on tonight. And that's what I want us to have in view as we consider the topic of worship together. As we think about what it means to love God, that begins at answering his call to join his people in worship. And as we'll see, it actually becomes a means to loving each other as well. So, if you'll begin with me there, I'd like us to look at what Paul has to say about the topic of worship in his letter to the Colossians. We'll see the focus of worship, the function of worship, and the form of worship. These headings will be our outline. There's a page in the back of the bulletin for you to take notes as you follow along, if you so desire. The first focus of our worship is it ought to be God-centered. And you would think this would be self-evident, right? Each Sunday, all over the globe, local congregations come together to worship the one true God. If he is the one being worshipped, it would stand to reason that he would be at the center of everything that goes on in worship. Yet if you spend much time looking around at what constitutes Christian worship in many churches, or what gets the label of worship music, or see the way that many professing believers discount the need to even attend worship regularly, you'll know this focus isn't always clear in the visible church. But this is not a new phenomenon. Paul deals with the same thing in the church at Colossae. There were those who had focused on what they thought were good rules for worship, but they ceased offering true worship. And Paul uses hyperbole to say their worship was directed as much toward angels as it was to Almighty God. Look with me beginning at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The Colossian church was apparently filled with people who loved pomp and circumstance. Like the Pharisees that Jesus mentions in Matthew 15. The more rules, the more holidays, the more rituals, the better. They piled up obligations and ceremonies and activities on themselves and on others. And then they looked down on those who didn't keep up with every added tradition. But they failed to see how the ceremonial law given to Israel was meant to be a shadow of Christ. Now that he had come, he had fulfilled those types. 
They didn't need to add more to their worship. If anything, they needed less this side of Calvary. Because the fullness had come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And and just briefly, I want to mention what Paul is not doing, because we, we heard this in our confession of sin. Paul is not saying the fourth commandment no longer applies when he says, let no one judge you in regards to a new moon or a festival or a Sabbath. What he's talking about is under those three uh, topics is the heading of all of the ceremonial law of the, of the calendar that the Jews were to keep the whole year long. That's what he's saying has passed away because that focuses on Christ. What remains is the need for God's people to gather weekly to worship him. That remains a moral obligation for all men, all women, but especially for the church of God. But these Colossians didn't stop there looking at the Old Testament worship. On top of these additional activities, they required emotional and mystical experiences. If people didn't get goosebumps or have an emotional response, they weren't sure if worship actually happened or if God was even there. So they insisted on asceticism, worship of angels, visions, sensual responses, whatever it took to achieve the goal of getting that supernatural feeling. And notice the result. Their focus on God wasn't sharpened. Their love for the Savior was not strengthened. Instead, they are puffed up, and they grow apart from Christ. So what alternative does Paul give? You might expect him to say, instead of this, we should disregard any kind of rules for worship. Or you might expect him to say, instead of the Jewish calendar, let's make up a brand new calendar that corresponds to everything that happened in the Old Testament. And he doesn't do either of those things. Instead, he says, the Colossian church should turn their gaze away from earthly things to ultimate things. Chapter 3 begins, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. How do we know how to seek Christ where he is? By listening to him speaking through his word. When it comes to applying this to worship, our confession, the Westminster Confession, is a faithful and helpful guide. Chapter 21 is uh, the chapter that covers the topic of worship. And it tells us that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. This doctrine is what has been dubbed the regulative principle of worship. The word of God regulates the worship of God. We may only do in worship what God's word requires us to do, either explicitly or by good and necessary consequence. We don't have the freedom to come up with new methods of honoring the Lord. Neither may we worship out of mere tradition. We've always done it this way is not good enough. And Thinking back, a brief survey of scripture should actually show us this. From Cain's offering, to Aaron making the golden calf, to, as we heard in Leviticus, Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire, Saul offering a sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel, King Uzziah entering the temple despite the warnings of the priests, Christ himself 
condemning the traditions of the elders. God makes it clear he doesn't want our innovation in worship. These man-made novelties are what Paul's referencing in verses 20 through 23. He calls it self-made religion, or as the King James has it, will worship. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These, in, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, will worship, and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Brothers and sisters, self-made worship is self-worship. This is true whether we are forbidding what God has command, commanded or whether we're permitting what God has not required in worship. Anytime we take our focus off of the Lord in worship, we end up making a mockery out of worship. So in addition to worship being God-focused, there's a secondary aspect. Worship is to be believer-oriented. I would argue that for churches across our nation, at least as far back as the second not-so-great awakening, the focus of the church gathering has shifted away from the weekly rhythm and the steady diet for believers that need spiritual sustenance to carry them through until they reach glory in the presence of the Savior. Instead of that, the emphasis for worship in many churches has changed to attract non-Christians, to draw them in, to give them an emotional experience, try to get them to make a decision to change their lives in some way. And th this has had various expressions throughout the years, from camp meetings to revivals with traveling evangelists to an entire industry of music made to sound like everything else on the radio only directed to Jesus instead of your girlfriend. So now, instead of encouraging you to go to, to church and worship with your grandma... Churches are eagerly telling you on their billboards that this is not your grandma's church, as if that's something good. And why? All for the sake of preventing those who do not love God from becoming too uncomfortable, or to keep those who don't believe in his word from becoming bored with it. Church, trying to make a worship service cool or relevant or exciting may indeed have an appearance of wisdom. But it is nothing but self-made religion which cannot accomplish what it promises. You cannot get selfish sinners to stop their selfish sinning by appealing to their selfish desires. When non-believers come to join in our worship, the only thing that will change their hearts is the same thing that changed ours, which is the very thing that is foolishness to all of us in our flesh. The preaching of Christ and Him crucified. When we gather in response to the triune God who calls us together to meet with him, when we are caught up in the communion of saints and angels, when we join in the unceasing praise of the throne room of God, there is nothing boring about that. There is nothing more relevant than that. And quite often, we ought to be a little uncomfortable when we draw near the covenant presence of the almighty, infinite, thrice-holy, all-knowing God of the universe. That reality is serious. There's no room for frivolity when we get together to worship. 
what we do here is serious business. But this God, he loves us. He has forgiven all our sins, and he calls us to himself to meet with him. And by his spirit, he condescends to meet with us. He gets pleasure from our feeble attempts to mumble back to him our meager thanks and praise. He wants to be with his people. God has given the gathered worship of the church as a location where his people together look to Christ. This is where we set our mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So if you're here with us and you are not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. I don't want you to feel unwelcome. Think of being here tonight like visiting someone else's family reunion. We have our own traditions. We have our own ways of speaking to each other. The the things that we do and carry meaning to us may seem strange or even off-putting to those who aren't part of our family. But we have a father that loves to show hospitality, and he welcomes you here. I hope you have seen and heard the goodness of God. I hope you've felt the depth of your sin before him and know of his willingness to forgive all your sin and receive you into his family. The the things we do may seem strange, but we would love nothing more than for you to become a part of our family by trusting in Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection to forgive your sins. We would love nothing more than for you to join our family traditions in worship. Because in ourselves, none of us are different from each other. We all have the same demands placed on us because of our sin, which Paul speaks of beginning in chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, false worship. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, all of us too once walked when you were living in them. But now, Christian and non-Christian alike, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. None of us can do this ourselves, but through faith in Christ, each of us can be united to him and receive both forgiveness and freedom from sin. Worship is for believers. We need it, and God demands it. And While I'm ranting, uh, let me add one other thing. Children, look up at me for a second. If you are five years old or younger, will you raise your hand? Okay, keep them up. If you are 10 years old or younger, can you raise your hand? Keep it up. 15 years old or younger, raise your hand. All right, everybody keep your hands up. Listen, I'm talking to you if your hand is up. Worship is for you. Everything that we do here tonight is just as much for the people with their hands up as the people who don't have their hands up. God wants to hear you praise him. Jesus wants to forgive you of all your sins. Our Father wants to hear you pray to him. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you through his word right now. 
You belong here. And it is an honor as your big brother in Christ to worship with you week in and week out. Thank you for being here and worshiping with us. Okay, you can put your hands down. So, our worship is to be God-focused and believer-oriented. So, now let's move to the function. The function of worship It's also going to be twofold. First, because I love hyphens, our worship is to be Christ-exalting. Paul shows us this in chapter 2, verse 17, when he declares that Christ is the substance of the entire Old Covenant system. When Paul calls us to look to Christ, he's giving Jesus, he's calling us to give Jesus the glory due to his name because he is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then our response to God's love shown to us is also focused on Christ. Look at 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We're ruled by Christ's peace. We're filled with the word of Christ. We do everything in the name of Christ. This is what the Westminster Confession means when it says in the chapter on worship, religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. When we gather together, generic honoring of a generic God will not suffice. Because it is Jesus in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. It is Jesus who is the exact character of the Father. All who have seen Jesus have seen the Father. His name is the name to which every knee will bow. And his name is the tongue, is the name that every tongue will confess. It is Jesus who alone is the lamb worthy to stand in the throne room of God and receive the worship of living creatures and elders and myriads of angels and every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in. So we are unapologetic about the fact that our worship exalts the person and the work of Jesus Christ. A second function of worship is that it is church edifying. Because the beautiful irony is, when we gather together to give glory to God, he's the one who's ministering to us through worship. When we come to give to God, we walk away receiving far more than what we brought with us through the means he has chosen to grant us his grace. In fact, we find it's God himself who is the primary actor in worship. In chapter 2, verse 19, Paul tells the Colossians, that the false forms of worship result in the church not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. But when the church worships in spirit and in truth, it is nourished, it is knit together, it does grow with the growth that is from God. Consider what Paul says in chapter 3. Remembering each time that you hear the word you, this is in the plural. Let's start with verse 9. 
Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Christian, if you want to grow in grace and obedience, you must start with the gathered worship of God's people. There are so many books and resources out there that try to put the impetus on you doing Christian things on your own. Your Bible reading plan, your personal devotions, your private prayer, your songs to God at home or in the car or in the shower, and those are all good things. Please do them. Please enjoy them. But I can tell you, I am constantly more convinced that the primary means for Christian growth is a lifetime of regular attendance on the means of grace in corporate worship. Discipleship begins at, and it cannot take place apart from, regular gathering together to worship with the saints in a local congregation. This is why, as we heard in our study of Hebrews, it's vital, even in the face of persecution, that the church not give up meeting together. We're so often tempted to be just like the Colossians, constantly looking for the exceptional or the intense experiences or the new methods that will bring sanctification when God offers himself to us through ordinary, simple means of grace. And then we get frustrated when our plans don't accomplish the spiritual growth that we desire. I think Jamie Smith sums up this point exactly in his book, You Are What You Love. So first he tells an old preacher's story about a man stuck on his roof in a rainstorm. The man is up on his roof, the floodwaters are rising, and he prays, God, deliver me, save me. And lo and behold, a neighbor comes by in a canoe and says, get in, the floodwaters are rising, get in, we'll go to safety. The man says, no thanks, God's going to save me. The floodwaters continue to rise, he gets to the top part of his roof, and lo and behold, a speedboat comes by of rescuers, and they say, get in, the floodwaters are rising, you're going to die. Get in, we'll go to safety. The man says, no thanks, God's going to save me. And then the floodwaters rise, he gets to the top of his chimney, and a helicopter comes by and lowers a ladder and says, climb the ladder, get in, and we'll fly to safety. And the man says, no thanks, God will save me. The man dies, he goes to heaven, he goes to the Lord and says, God, I thought you were going to save me. And God says, I sent you a canoe, a boat, and a helicopter. What else did you want? Jamie Smith says this after telling that story. The story, while quaint, gets at an important truth. 
Too often we look for the Spirit in the extraordinary when God has promised to be present in the ordinary. We look for God in the fresh and novel as if His grace were always an event when He has promised that His Spirit faithfully attends the ordinary means of grace in the Word at the table. More concretely, the story illustrates an incarnational lesson. God meets us where we are. And then he sums up this section by saying this. The most potent, charged, transformative site of the Spirit's work is the most unlikely of all places, the church. Yes, Christian formation is a life-encompassing, Monday through Saturday, week-in and week-out project, but it radiates from and is nourished by the worship life of the congregation gathered around word and table. There is no sanctification without the church, not because the building holds some superstitious magic, but rather because the church is the very body of Christ, animated by the Spirit of God. He says, the practices of prayer and song, preaching and offering, baptism and communion are the canoes and boats and helicopters God graciously sends our way. He meets us where we are as creatures of habit who are shaped by practices and invites us into a community of practice that is the very body of his son. Liturgy is the way we learn to put on Christ. Colossians 3, 12 to 16. Why does Paul end his call to holiness with a call to sing? Because singing happens at corporate worship, and worship is a gift that edifies the church. This leads us to our last point to consider, which is the form of our worship. How do we take the focus, how do we take the function, and then put them into practice? First, the form our worship takes is a plain one. We are not like the prophets of Baal, shrieking to get God's attention. We shouldn't pray like the Pharisees, using loud and long words to get other people's attention. Our worship should be straightforward, simple, and practical. Think, think about this. The gospel has spread to every continent on earth, despite cultural and language barriers as it goes. The worship of God is always going to have cultural aspects to how it's expressed and how it's executed, but at its core, worship should be as cross-cultural as the gospel itself. Keeping our worship plain keeps us from being trapped by culture or circumstance. It helps us be portable. I mean, after all, the first century churches were able to gather in homes, outdoors, in synagogues, even in underground tombs to worship. It's because their worship was simple and plain. All that we truly need for worship is God's people, his word, bread, wine, and water. And what a blessing that is. Because we can gather in a church building or on someone's front porch, and we can know that the Lord is pleased to gather with us, receive our praise, and minister to us regardless of where we meet. I said earlier that we are only to do in worship what God's word requires. So the obvious question is, what are those things? When we look at the New Testament, I think we see the church focusing on three categories of activities when they gathered together. Simple means, singing members, and sharing monetarily. Acts 2.42 shows us that the growing church at Jerusalem centered on the simple means of grace. Luke writes, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. 
The way that the Lord ministers to his people as they gather in worship is through his word, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the sacraments, and prayer. And I say the sacraments are in view here in Acts 2 because these Christians had been baptized at their conversion. And many scholars believe when Luke is writing about them breaking bread together, he's referencing the Lord's Supper. In, in Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, he shows that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is vital to the life of the church. So I hope you can already recognize that these simple means make up a large portion of our own liturgy. The service begins and ends in, with scripture in the call to worship and the benediction. Through the sermon, the word is at the very middle of our service. We likewise reaffirm our dedication to the apostles' teaching by responding to the sermon each week by confessing our faith together. We fellowship each week, not only in the conversation before and after, but in coming to the Lord's table together, in our prayers for each other's needs, and in giving tithes and offerings to help meet the physical needs of those around us. We celebrate the Lord's Supper every week because this is the covenant meal where God, by the work of his Spirit, feeds his people with the body and the blood of our Savior, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We also baptize covenant children and those who come to faith and have not yet been baptized. We pray often because we know we are a needy people and we express that need to the Lord in prayers for him to meet us in worship, to forgive our sins, to speak through his word, to bless us at the table, in our pastoral prayer, and in praying for our tithes and offerings. Because our greatest need is God's grace. And these simple means are the instruments God has chosen to use to grant us that grace. These simple means are vital to the health and the growth of God's people. In addition to these simple means, we sing. Our passage tonight clearly gives us a command. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And while I can't answer for you tonight exactly what songs Paul has in mind here, we can know at least three things about this command. First, the church sings. Music is a beautiful gift from God, and he has purposed it for his own glory. So whether you are classically trained or you are just merely making a joyful noise, the most important instrument here tonight is your voice. Second, the church sings God's word. At least some of what Paul wants the Colossians to sing is from the Psalms. Because the purpose of singing is to allow the word of God to dwell in them richly. And you might be like me and didn't grow up singing psalms in church. But at Christ Church, we make an effort to sing songs taken directly from Scripture often in our services. Because what better words are there than the Lord's own words to sing his praise? And third, we sing with thanksgiving. As God's covenant people, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing and that should cause joy to well up in our hearts and pour out of our mouths in songs. The last element of the church's worship is sharing monetarily. 
We see an explicit command for this in 1 Corinthians 16. Paul instructs the Corinthians, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. For those who belong to Jesus, giving to the church to continue its ministry is not optional. But neither is it to be done begrudgingly. Instead, we who have received all we need and more from the hand of our generous Lord respond by sharing what we have as an act of worship. Giving belongs in our worship services as a way to honor and praise our great God. So our worship is plain. It's also purposeful. Liturgy should not be a scary word. It merely refers to the organization of the worship service. Every church has a liturgy, whether they realize it or not. So if Jamie Smith is right about liturgy being formative, and I happen to think he is, then nothing that we do can be haphazard, nothing that we do can be arbitrary. Everything that we do must have a reason and a purpose. And this is why we've shaped our liturgy like we have. Each week, as we move through the elements of the liturgy, we're moving through the narrative of the Christian life. You may have noticed in the bulletin there are notes in the margin that explain each piece of our worship service. But quickly think through it with me. We're gathered at the call of God and we bless his name. We're confronted by our sin in the face of his holiness and so we confess our sin and we're comforted by his grace. We're then instructed by his word. We respond in faith by confessing that we believe what we've heard. The Lord feeds us himself so that we have the strength to do what he commands and we respond in love for him, each other, and our neighbors, first in prayer, and then in praise and giving to meet the needs of those around us. Finally, we're sent out with the blessing of God to obey him and to live in the world where he has placed us. Our liturgy is a microcosm of the Christian life, and through it, each week, this is how we set our minds on the things that are above. This is how we put to death what is earthly in us. This is how we put on Christ, and this is how we are empowered and commissioned to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And this actually means that our services are great for evangelism. Every single week, regardless of the sermon passage, the message is preached as we move through the elements of the service. God is good. We are sinners. Christ is the only way of salvation. He is sufficient to cover the sins of anyone who believes in him, and those who look to him in faith are called to live holy lives as God by his spirit grants grace. This is all purposeful. Finally, our worship is participatory. This is not a spectator sport. We are here to take part in worship and in receiving God's grace. Our liturgy is actually set up as a dialogue. When we hear the call to worship, we're not merely individuals responding but we're gathered as one body and we unite with one voice. So God calls us to worship and the church answers in praise. He declares our sin and we answer in confessing that sin. He assures us of our salvation and we answer in thanksgiving. He speaks through his word and we answer in affirming our faith. He feeds us and we respond in acts of love and charity to one another. Every one of us is here to act rather than watch because Christ is all and in all. We've seen the focus, the function, and the form that worship is to take. So what now? 
I'd like to leave with a few questions on how we should respond. First, are you trusting in this Christ who is exalted above all? Have you put off the old sinful self and put on the new self so that you can now do everything in his name and give thanks to the Father through him? If not, confess your sin to him. Trust in his death and resurrection for your salvation and his peace will rule in your heart. Second, are there man-made traditions that hinder you from worshiping as you should? Or do you find yourself desiring those mystical and emotional experiences? Put those to the side. Instead, focus on the ways that God has prescribed for his worship, trusting his promise that the means he has given for his worship are enough. Third, do you find excuses to miss worship? Are you tired or busy or fearful? Consider that the Lord calls you to worship with his people. He is deserving of all honor, but what's more, he gives it as a gift for your good. Stop neglecting what is vital for your spiritual life. And come be fed by word and sacrament as you pray in fellowship with your brothers and sisters. Last, do you prepare and come to, to church ready to worship? Or is there some aspect you find difficult to participate in? Do you come in joy and expectation to meet with the God of the universe? Pray and ask that the Holy Spirit will help you join in all the ways that the people of God worship him. It is still true that the Father is seeking worshipers who work, worship him in spirit and in truth. So by God's grace, may that be the case for every single one of us. Let's pray.